Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Tal Shalev, the chief political correspondent for Walla News and a longtime friend of this podcast and Israel Policy Forum in general, is back with us today for a deep dive into the current state of play in Israeli politics, now two and a half months away from Election Day on November 1st. But before we get to Tal, a few quick thoughts from me. These are, of course, the dog days of summer. Hot, lazy, languid, cucumber season, as they say in Israel. Uh, and no, I have no idea why they call it that. Last week's three-day escalation in Gaza was definitely an outlier. It's been fairly quiet here. Much of the country is on vacation. And it's also been true for the Israeli political scene. The country is obviously in the grip of its fifth election in three and a half years, a dubious and sad world record, which is clearly a sign of a deep political crisis that is yet to be resolved, despite the now five elections. The easy and facile way to look at this crisis is strictly in the sense of yes, Bibi, no Bibi, i.e., there's a pro-Netanyahu camp, his Likud party, the two ultra-Orthodox factions, and the far-right religious Zionism party. And there's also an anti-Netanyahu camp. Basically, everyone else, uh, clearly led now by transition prime minister Yair Lapid and his centrist Yeshatid party. On the face of it, it's just a personalized issue, a reality TV show having to do mostly with Netanyahu's ongoing corruption trial on charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. But I'd argue it's not just a personal issue, and it's definitely not a reality TV show having just to do with one man, but real issues are involved, real principles, and dare we say, real ideological stakes revolving around many key questions, like are Arab-Israeli citizens and their political representatives legitimate political players? One side says yes, the other side says no. Will the ultra-Orthodox continue to hold sole monopoly on religious life in Israel? One side says yes, the other side says no. Is Israel a country of laws with separation between the government branches and a strong and independent judiciary? Here again, one side says yes, the other side says no. And finally, does Israel have to, have to, start working towards separation from the Palestinians to ensure its future as a Jewish and democratic state? Again, one side says yes, the other side says no. Put simply, the upcoming election, like the four that came before it, in fairness, is nothing short of existential. The fact that no one is yet really paying attention, and that there may be no clear-cut outcome after election day yet again, doesn't make it any less so. Let's get to Tal Shalev. Hi, Tal. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Nari. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here back again. Uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, so, Tal, a lot to get into today, but I wanted to start off with a little bit of housekeeping right off the bat. You were last on our podcast in early May, if you remember. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bennett Lapid government back then was teetering after they had just lost their parliamentary majority, uh, the infamous Edith Silman affair. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I back then both said that the government's days were numbered, that it wouldn't survive. So kudos to both of us for getting that right. Uh, this is why you all come to the Israel Policy Pod. But 
If you remember, back then you went a step further and said that if the government did collapse, then Prime Minister Naftali Bennett would more than likely be retiring from politics. You were the first person I heard speculate about that, and you were obviously right. He's not running again in the upcoming election. So I wanted to start off with Naftali Bennett and to look back before we look forward. How would you assess Bennett's prime ministership, uh, the demise of both his government and his Yamina party, which is no longer with us. So what do you think this whole Bennett experiment over the past year plus? So as always, it's a bit complicated. Um, I think that at large, um, Bennett had a good year as prime minister. First of all, because he proved he can be part of, you know, the prime minister's club. Um, and I think he's the first person who to prove or to have the opportunity to prove himself um, as not Netanyahu leading the country and doing it successfully, um, A, with the COVID virus that the, the whole, the beginning of uh, Bennett's term was all about the co- about COVID, about another wave of COVID. And he de- dealt with it, with the crisis uh, quite successfully overturning Netanyahu's previous policy of closures and uh, leaving, like his main policy was to leave the country open and that kind of worked. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, B, and just, you know, passing the budget and C, and handling Israel's foreign relations. So at large, Bennett had a year with both crises and successes, which he proved himself, um, I think, to be like on the leadership level and just to, to... it, 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 we have to remember like where Bennett starts off, right? Uh, he starts off the leader of a very small party, but especially someone who's used to be very much uh, like a joke of the political system. And Bennett's aspirations to become prime minister were always ridiculed, like on satire shows, like Eretz Nederet, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of this year, I don't think anyone in Israel can say that he's not in that club. Yeah, he did prove himself to be an okay prime minister without the country collapsing. And that by itself um, is, a, is, is, is important uh, for his future. I did say that he did retire, but I don't think that means he's not going to be coming back. But we'll get back to that later. Interesting that you think uh, he still has a future. It seems, yeah. it seems that there was a reason why he took, as he said, a timeout from politics, though, didn't have public support, even after a relatively successful year as prime minister. Well, he had a relatively successful year as a prime minister, but he had a very bad year as a politician. And that is why essentially his government broke up, because when you look at the reason or you look at the processes that led to the government collapsing, it comes from Bennett's own party. Um, everything starts with the Amina, even if we go back to <clears throat> when the government was established. So the first defector was Amichai Shikli from Yamina. And then in April, we have Edith Silman defecting from Yamina. And eventually, Bennett's re- Bennett reaches the decision to, you know, dissolve the government by itself, by himself voluntarily, after another member of Yamina, Nir Orbach, uh, threatens to defect. So, he couldn't keep his government together. He couldn't keep his party together. And that's his biggest failure, because in order to be a prime minister, you have to not only be a good leader. You also have to remember how to keep things at home, keep keep things in your own political home quiet. 
And I think what happened to Bennett is at some point, somewhere in February, March, somewhere where he starts uh, this endeavor of mediating between Russia and Ukraine, Bennett fell too much in love, you know, with the jet club and with being part of world leaders and with the job of being prime minister that he forgot how to be a politician. And his decision to retire, I think, is an acknowledgement of the fact that um, that that he failed on the political level. And it's a recognition of that in um, that he was left basically all alone, not only in his party, but also in his own chamber. His uh, um, his his chamber basically broke apart a few weeks uh, before um, before the government collapses. And I got to say, I got to give it to Bennett because we don't it's very rare to see someone in the political system know when to end, you know, when, what, you know, have, uh, knows when to retire, understands his political situation. And Bennett understood that it would be very, very difficult for him to garner support in another election. And he, his calculation was that it was better for him to leave elegantly and retire elegantly and still leave a positive impression on, let's say, at least 50% of Israelis um, in order to build himself for a potential comeback in the future. So it's interesting. I think Bennett himself, in one of his uh, exit interviews, so to speak, said that he uh, he admitted he spent too much time with Putin and Zelensky and not, not enough time with Edith Silman and Nir Orbach. So even he uh, belatedly acknowledged that fact. Yeah, and I just want to say he's very young, right? Bennett is only 50. That's very young for Israeli politics. He now has the prime minister title, uh, the prime minister of Israel title, which is a very prestigious title and can help you, you know, in business around the world. Let's remember at the end of the day, he's an entrepreneur. That's where he starts. So I think that Bennett can definitely have like a successful um, vacation now outside. And then if he wants to come back, he still has enough time to build himself and to actually learn from his mistakes and, uh, you know, build his, build his political career, rebuild his political career or relaunch it at some point. Um, Bennett's, um, main political mistake at the end of the day was the way he chose the members of his party, right? Uh, because his own party, was not loyal enough, was not uh, on board with him. Um, and that's eventually, I think, one of the main lessons of this government is that uh, um, it really matters. Loyal Loyalty is one of the most important assets that a leader can have inside his own party. And let me follow up on that. That's obviously true, by the way. I think uh, loyalty and the number of defections from either side in Israeli politics, uh, you know, Knesset members going going to the other side, uh, change things all the time, given the very fine margins of Israeli politics and, and Knesset. But let me ask you big picture, right? Bennett, in forming the government last year, uh, turned his back on what was his traditional base mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the farther, the farther reaches of the right wing, the pro-settler uh, part of Israeli society, and they didn't forgive him. Mm-hmm. They didn't forgive him. And so he was almost kind of this king without a country. And we also saw it in the polls, which I think is arguably the main reason why he, he's not running right now. So if he comes back to the political scene, who who is he going to appeal to? Is he going to revert back to the right wing, the classic right wing Bennett? Is he going to be the prime minister Bennett? That was very much a moderate, you know, trying to portray himself mm-hmm. as a as almost a centrist. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I actually believe Bennett uh, with his moderation as prime minister. I actually do think that he was very enthusiastic about the fact that he could form a government that represents almost all sectors of Israeli society besides the ultra-Orthodox uh, um, communities. Um, and I think that uh, that kind of, you know, it was kind of a revelation for Bennett, who built his old career right on the far right uh, settlers. So I think that if he comes back, yes, he will try and find his new audience in the center and soft right. Perhaps where we see Benny Gantz um, right now, that would be his political, his potential uh, electorate. Um, I want to say that I think that Bennett is basically the mirror of Benny Gantz. Um, when Benny Gantz joined the government with Netanyahu in 2020, he broke his most uh, one of his most important election promises that he ran a campaign on not to sit with Netanyahu. And in the same way that Bennett was punished by his voters, by his electorate, that um, Gantz was punished exactly the same. If we go back to the beginning of the previous election campaign, Gantz was hardly passing in the in the polls, and it took a very uh, um, very intensive effort uh, to build himself a new electorate. And I think that Bennett just wanted to, you know, he could have done that if he would have run. He probably would have uh, reached, uh, he could have reached a party of seven or eight seats, building on that electorate, like on the center, so, um, center and uh, soft right wing electorate. Um, but I think that he just uh, understood that it won't bring him to be prime minister again, right? Um, and that part of the, that part of the experiment will probably not be, you know, will not recur. Um, and I think that after you're a prime minister and you look at your options and your options is to become, I don't know, a medium sized portfolio in another person's government, then sometimes it's you probably preferred to retire um, to have such a difficult election campaign. And Gantz's previous election campaign was very, very difficult. Um, and then. Um, play the same game again and knowing that the chances you're going to reach the top are very, very low. Um, I understand why Bennett uh, wanted, preferred to retire and to build, you know, to leave a positive impression amongst those, um, amongst, amongst those potential voters for the future. Bennett was, yes, he was um, denounced very strongly by half of his camp and half of his former voters but on the other side, in the anti-Netanyahu camp, he was credited for being the prime minister who brought Netanyahu down. Um, and that credit, I think, uh, um, he, he's building on that credit. That's the place he'll be looking for his future support if and when he comes back. Right. And a final point, I guess, on, on Bennett. Uh, it's remarkable to me how quickly power goes away, how quickly power ebbs uh, I think in Israel and also probably all over the world where one day Bennett is prime minister and all eyes are on him. And then he announces that he's stepping down and, and giving up as per agreement, the prime ministership to Yair Lapid. And now we barely hear from Bennett, probably by choice, but also because he's just an alternate prime minister and has no real political future either that he's not running in, in this campaign. So it's, it's remarkable to me how, how quickly that happened. Yeah, it's remarkable, remarkable. And even I would say, uh, it, it creates some kind of empathy, right? Because, uh, 
one day you're on the top of the world, you're prime minister, you're the most important person in the country. And a day later, you just have this kind of empty title as alternate prime minister with no real authority and just trying to keep your, your space. And I think that Bennett uh, has had a very difficult time getting used to it. We've seen over the course of the last month or so, um, several incidents of tensions between him and Lapid about basically about ego and basically about influence and where is he in the picture and where is he in the uh, um, in the statements and what role does he play um, in the beginning um, he tried to avoid cameras right um, but he didn't he didn't attend the first cabinet meeting exactly after he, he resigned exactly he didn't attend the first cabinet meeting then the second cabinet meeting he arrived late so that the cameras wouldn't get catch him entering or sitting next to uh, um, the pig uh, but I think that he's slowly getting over that and um you know I think um, a we should know that one of the reasons that Bennett is staying alternate prime minister um even though he's not um he doesn't really have a job and he's not running in the next election one of the reasons he's keeping to the post is that um at some point um somewhere in december if he's still alternate prime minister then he'll be entitled to have the prime minister's office and benefits for many more years and that could be important You know, it's about the office and it's about the um, the security, uh, the security that he that surrounds him. It's it's like status symbols that Bennett wants to have. In my opinion, he, he wants to have these status symbols because he knows he'll be coming back. And those status symbols could be important when he comes back. Okay, so from the former prime minister to the current prime minister, Yair Lapid, who is not even two months in office, uh, obviously as transition prime minister ahead of the election. Lapid just had his first successful military campaign in Gaza last week. His Yeshatid party is riding high in the polls, uh, low to mid-20 seats in the polls, a historic high for Lapid. So, Tal, what do you think in terms of Lapid so far as prime minister? Well, I don't like to give out compliments to prime ministers. This is a secret. Uh, <laughs> like it, it immediately feels to me that when someone enters the job, I need to be critical towards him. So it's very difficult for me to compliment him. But all in all together, objectively, Lapid had a good uh, first month and a good debut uh, in office. First of all, it started out with the Biden, President Biden's visit, which he hosted, which was very successful and kind of gave him this kind of positive wind to start his job. But more importantly, as you mentioned, the fact that he successfully handled this very successful operation in Gaza um, uh, earlier this month uh, was an incredible boost for Lapid's image. We don't necessarily see it in the polls um, or in the elect on the electoral map at the moment, but we do see it and feel it um, in the in other parameters such as, you know, Um, uh, opinion polls about who's suitable to be prime minister. Lapid starts at a very low point. He's one of the most underestimated politicians in Israeli politics. That's why everything he does good gives him points. He's just proving himself in the job and based on the job. And basically, Lapid's main goal in office is to have minimum mistakes, just to do everything, have everything happen correctly and 
so far, almost everything has been without mistakes. There's one place where he's, um, um, he's already faced a challenge, and that is the tension with Russia uh, regarding the Jewish agency, um, the Jewish agency legal debacle, uh, where he's, uh, you know, that's one of his soft spots at the moment. And we might have, you know, a disagreement coming up with the administration regarding the Iran deal that could also turn into a soft spot for him just because Netanyahu will probably use it and manipulate it to attack, uh, uh, to, to attack Lapid. But also, every time that Netanyahu attacks Lapid, Lapid only earns from it because Lapid's goal is to keep the race, you know, a double-headed race, just him against Netanyahu. Um, it turns Lapid into the, it, it legitimizes him and turns him into, you know, a much more legitimate leader of the uh, center-left bloc. And you got to say also in the numbers, as you mentioned correctly, Lapid is already steady. Yeshatid is already steady over 22 seats in the polls, in some polls even reaching 25. Um, and that's already a substantial gap from other parties in the center-left, and most specifically from Benny Gantz, who is trying to turn the race into a three-headed race. But so far, Lapid is succeeding to the, the, the fact that Lapid is in the prime minister's office is giving him, you know, that um, giving him the tools to keep uh, a gap from uh, Gantz. So we'll get to Benny Gantz in just a second. But I wanted to bear down into the brass tacks of Lapid and the election campaign. There's a, a narrative, which I personally don't subscribe to, but there's a, a narrative put forward definitely by BB and the opposition and the right wing, and also by a lot of people in the Israeli media saying, well, Lapid doesn't really have a government after November 1st, after election day, that while he may personally be riding high in the polls, the numbers just won't work. Uh, and that's without talking about the unknown variables in his camp, uh, merits, labor on the left, Victor Lieberman, the Arab-Israeli-Islamist Rom party are all flirting with the electoral threshold for entry into the Knesset. So... I know it's early, Tal, and well, sometimes we make predictions, sometimes we don't. But what do you think in terms of this narrative that, well, Lapid doesn't really have a government, even if he does really well November 1st? Well, A, um, it's, it's, it's true that Lapid uh, doesn't have a government, at least that the numbers, the way they look the, the, to right now, then no one has a government, right? Netanyahu doesn't have a government uh, because he, he's not close to 61. And Lapid doesn't have a government because the only way he can reach 61 is by cooperating uh, with the joint list. Now, joint list, the Arab, the, the more kind of hardline Arab-Israeli political party. Exactly. Um, by the way, the joint list, Ayman Oda and Ahmed Tibi, Five years ago, I wouldn't necessarily tag them as the hardliners in the in Arab politics. But one of True. the things that happened as a result of Ram being a partner in the in the Zionist government is that the joint list, Ahmad Tibi and Ayman Oda, who were left on the who were not part of the government and were part of the opposition, they radicalized their positions and they ragged, radicalized their rhetoric against cooperation with uh, um, any Jewish or Zionist government. And in that respect, over the course of the past year, um, they've become much less partner mat uh, material or potential for even 
left-wing leaders. Um, so Lapid himself has also changed his rhetoric. Um, Lapid in the past used to say that, yes, there's no problem with forming a government based on the joint list. He's not saying that anymore. Um, so if Lapid says there's no government without a joint list, then and he keeps up to his word, then Lapid, yes, does not have a government. Um, the only way that you see a government in the foreseeable future based on the numbers right now is that you have a defection, another defection, right? Just like we had the two previous governments. Gantz defected to Netanyahu. Bennett defected to the anti-Netanyahu camp. And in the next election, the only way that you might have um, a government is if part of uh, the anti-Netanyahu bloc joins Netanyahu or if part of the Netanyahu bloc's bloc joins the anti-Netanyahu bloc. Now, Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar, who are forming, right, who formed their new uh, national unity camp, a new party with Gaidi Eisenkot, they are building a narrative that after the elections, if Netanyahu doesn't have 61, then his party will break up and that maybe his alliance with the ultra-Orthodox parties will break up. I don't think that's true. Um, in the past four elections, Netanyahu's bloc has only grown stronger and stronger. His support in the Likud is go only growing stronger and stronger. So the to, to believe or to assume that next time something will change, I think it's a kind of a fantasy they're selling to themselves and to their uh, supporters. So at the end of the day, by the way, if no one has a government and no one will succeed to form a government and there will be no defections, as uh, um, then actually Lapid's best way to stay prime minister is there if there will be a sixth election, right? Uh, he, stays, he stays prime minister. Exactly. If there's a sixth election, he stays prime minister. So that might be the, you know, the best scenario uh, from the, Lapid's point of view the day after the election but as you mentioned, there are a lot of variables that we don't know about the small parties, which of the small parties will pass the electoral threshold, how much voter turnout will there be in the Arab uh, communities, in the Arab cities. That's going to be extremely cru crucial. And yes, voter turnout also in the Likud cities is also important. And, you know, it's all about the numbers we're talking about at the moment. It seems we're talking about, you know, a margin of two or three seats that Netanyahu is missing in order to reach 61. And if he gets those, then, you know, Lapid's uh, term will be extremely short and uh, Netanyahu will probably be back in office back at, somewhere in uh, December, January. So just final question on Lapid specifically. Do you think he's adopting a different strategy than he did last election last year, where this was almost a magnanimous election campaign that he ran, very conservative, uh, lowercase c, in terms of his campaigning and media profile? He really made an effort to make sure that the smaller parties in his anti-Netanyahu camp, in the center and the left, made it over the electoral threshold. Now, at least for right now, it seems like he's adopting a more aggressive election strategy, that he wants to be the biggest party, he wants to close the gap with Netanyahu, and that the smaller parties should and can fend for themselves. Do you think this is overstating it? Do you think it's just too early in the race, or has he actually shifted uh, his political strategy this time around? Well, uh, 
they they declare they've they've shifted their political strategy and they do talk about the fact that they want to be lar- a larger party but yes we have to remember that in Israel the politics are politics of block politics if one of these parties fails to pass the electoral threshold Lapid will never be, be prime minister after the yeah, election game over yeah so it's a very delicate game that he has to play um a it's a bit too early because we still have a month until the lists are closed and I expect uh, that somewhere in the last two weeks there will start a, there will be much more significant pressure on both of the left-wing parties labor and merits to unite at the moment it's like kind of dimmed away. The Labour Party had primaries um, and uh, Merit is having their primary election next week. Only after it's clear who's leading uh, Merit and how it looks, then I think we'll have another wave of pressure on both sides to unite. At the moment, they're both at, at least at the moment, the Labour Party is adamantly resisting all of this pressure to have a union or at least a technical bloc with uh, Meretz, but it seems like they might not have any choice. Um, one of the things is that it doesn't re- necessarily matter what Lapid does. The dynamics of the campaign will turn the race between him and Netanyahu to the most interesting race, and that even naturally, without him doing anything, that can create kind of a movement of votes from the sidelines, from the margins to the center. Um, and the more he and Netanyahu, you know, engage in a head-to-head, uh, um, in a head-to-head uh, uh, battle, that will create that kind of uh, um, dynamic. And so I, I, I do think that it's not necessarily up to Lapid. Um, one thing that should be mentioned is also that at some point, I think that Labor, the Labour Party will be even in more danger than Meretz, uh, because oh. Meretz has a very clear, you know, uh, electorate. Um, they're very loyal. They're not loyal necessarily to the person leading Meretz, but they're loyal to the brand. And they've been voting for Meretz for many, many years. Um, they define themselves as left wing. If Zaba Galon is elected, then she's like a, she's like a left wing icon. So um, I think she'll be um, relatively safe. But the Labour Party, I think, is in a bit more danger because both Lapid and Gantz are looking to labor voters um, to in order to to you know to grow. Um, and at some point, you could see the Labour Party actually being eroded on both sides. One side from Gantz people, uh, Gantz taking one side, Lapid taking the other side, and the Labour Party at the moment is polling at five six seats. So it's you know they each one of them just needs to lose half a percent, um, if they lose half a percent from each side, they're already in a problem. Um, so I think that uh, um, Michaeli is going to be in a bigger problem than Zava Galon. So that's Mirab Michaeli, the chairperson, chairwoman of the Labour Party, and she is so far adamantly opposed to merging with Meretz. Uh, nobody can quite understand why. Uh, it's like fighting over the deck chairs on a Titanic uh, these two mm-hmm. historic left-wing Israeli parties. Uh, there's no real reason to have two of them, but that's uh, that's an issue for for a different time. For a totally different uh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> for a totally different podcast that may be the worst listened podcast in the history of Israel Policy Pod. <laughs> Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. 
We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, visit our YouTube channel for short explainer videos and our 120 Project Israeli election news updates, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Subscribe to receive updates about all of this and more at israelpolicyforum.org slash subscribe. Benny Gantz, which you mentioned. So he obviously, a few weeks ago, joined up with Justice Minister Gidon Saar, and that was the first merger or union. And then the big news of this past week, uh, former IDF Chief of Staff Gadi Eisenkot decided to join the fray, and he joined up with Gantz and Saar into uh, what people are calling, what did you call it? the National Unity Camp, the statesman, Statesmanship Camp. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the Machane uh, Amamlachti. It's worse, it's as bad in Hebrew as it is in English. <laughs> yes, uh, but there weren't, I think they're just running out of party names, you know, given all the elections and all the all the different parties and factions. I have to uh, say, on that note, I have to say that I think that uh, this is one of the weirdest decisions that Benny Gantz has made is in political career to replace the name of his party. You know, Benny Gantz has been running under the name Blue and White for three and a half years. It's a brand. He's put millions of shekels into campaigning on that brand. And then just one day, Gadi Eisenkot comes, and one of his demands is that I want the name to be different. Uh, I want to change the name. And he just gives up the name. And I think that campaign-wise, it's such a peculiar decision because... In, it took so long for Israelis to identify blue and white with Benny Gantz. And now you kind of erase that name. You erase that logo. You erase that slogan, all of the slogans. And you're replacing the name with something that doesn't ring very easily on Israeli ears. It's kind of an old-fashioned name. And i got to say, it's really, I don't understand it altogether. Yeah, there are a lot of questions with regard to the move. Not, I guess, the decision by Eisenkot to join politics and not even maybe his decision to join with Gantz and Gidon Saar, even though there are deep ideological differences between, say, Eisenkot and Gidon Saar and his people, who are very much right-wing, and Eisenkot is a lot more center, some would even say center-left. Uh, also, Eisenkot had the option of joining Lapid, who was also courting him, uh, but Eisenkot chose to go with Gantz and Gidon Saar. The bottom line, I think, is that for Gantz and Saar, even after they joined up, and now even with Eisenkot, they're not doing so great in the polls. Like you said, they're trying to make this a three-horse race, Lapid, Bibi, and Gantz for prime minister, uh, but they're maybe in the low teens at the moment, maybe mid-teens in terms of seats. So what do you think so far about this this experiment? Well, um, Gantz is trying to reenact his original um, his original project, uh, the original Blue and White. So let's go back to January 2019 when Gantz enters politics. His first step is to join forces with Bogi Alon. 
And his second step is to join forces with Yair Lapid. And that way he has a right-wing side from Bogi Alon and a left-wing side or at least considerably or center-left side with Yair Lapid. And he builds a party that supposedly represents um, or can appeal to a wide spectrum of uh, Israeli society or of, of, of the Israeli liberal electorate. Um, so he's trying to do that again. This time, Benny Gantz, um, Gidon Saar was uh, Moshe Yalon. He's his first, the first, uh, you know, union that Gantz does in the election. And Gadi Adenkot is playing the role of Lapid. He's supposed to bolster uh, Gantz from the, from the left-wing side. Um, in between, it, it creates a party that has very big ideological differences, right? Especially on the Palestinian question. If you listen to Gadi Eisenkot's rhetoric and you listen to Gidon Saar and Zev Elkin's rhetoric, really there's nothing in common um, on that matter. But they're trying to create a, a new uh, platform um, that can um, supposedly appeal to the more I would say soft right voters. What Gantz and Saar think is that, uh, or their strategy, or their explaining the idea is, uh, they say that Lapid cannot appeal that right wing voters, soft right wing voters, people who voted for Bennett or Saar in the last election cannot vote for Lapid. They will not vote for Lapid and they'll prefer to vote for Netanyahu. And they say we're creating the third option, the third alternative for people who don't want Netanyahu and don't want uh, Lapid. Um, so far, you were right. It seems like um, it's not living up to the expectations. Um, the First of all, the union with uh, Gidon Sal very quickly kind of lost momentum and they were polling even less than they were worth in the previous Knesset. Um, and Combined. Yeah, combined. So they were polling, they were polling less combined than they had in the current outgoing Knesset individually as parties. Exactly. And Gadi Eisenkot uh, gave them some momentum on the first polls that were conducted on Sunday. Um, there were the guns, guns got stronger by two or three seats, but that's, uh, but still he's not passing like the, He's not passing the threshold of becoming a medium party. So what does Gantz want? Gantz wants that the day after the election, his plan or um, his the, the project says that um, the day after the election, if Netanyahu doesn't have 61, then I'll have a better chance at forming a coalition. Why? Because I have a better relationship with the ultra-Orthodox parties than Lapid. But this goes back to what I told you before, that there's kind of a, that they're selling a kind of a fantasy that after the election, Netanyahu's block will break apart. I don't see that happening. And I think that they're finding it hard also to convince the public to that. There's also another thing that um, both uh, Gantz and Saal are suspected, or at least uh, um, in many parts of their camp, suspect that they, if Netanyahu doesn't have 61, they'll join a government with Netanyahu, right? Because we know that the whole goal of Gantz is to, you know, get what he deserves and to get his premiership and basically to replace Lapid at the premiership. So if Netanyahu doesn't have 61, he can easily um, try and, um, you know, maneuver himself into a rotation agreement with Netanyahu, which uh, puts uh, Benny Gantz as prime minister and Netanyahu as the alternate prime minister. 
But that's a problem in the current campaign, you know, landscape. Because after so many elections, Israelis, literally, they, they, want, to, they want a clear answer. It's about yes or no, Bibi. And, they want, and that's the question they'll be asking themselves. And the fact that Gantz and Saab, even though they deny it adamantly all the time and they say we're not going to sit with Netanyahu, but the fact that they're not trusted on that matter could very much uh, hurt them. Because at the end of the day, if someone doesn't want Netanyahu, then Lapid is a much more trustworthy answer for him. And if someone does want Netanyahu, then Netanyahu is a better answer for them. And somewhere in the middle, those two, the fact that um, Gantz and Saar and Eisenkot are going to be running like on kind of these, with, with kind of an ambiguity around that question, I think it's going to hurt them and it's going to be very challenging for them to rise to a medium-sized party. Also, let's play this out, right? After election day, if Bibi doesn't have a majority of 61 seats in the Knesset and Lapid, say, doesn't have a very clear path to forming a governing coalition. So the idea, like you said, is that Gan steps in as as this kind of middle ground compromise candidate uh, to broker a deal both going left and going right. The problem I see with it is, number one, uh forming a, a unity government in some kind of rotation with Bibi, Gantz has already been in that movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it didn't, it didn't work out well for him at all. And so the idea that Gantz with, I don't know, 15 seats is going to be prime minister on top of uh, a Bibi camp mm-hmm. below him, I don't see how that can work. Mm-hmm. And then number two, like, like you said, they're selling this, I, I like the word fantasy. They're selling this fantasy that they can, they can broker a deal with at least parts of the ultra-Orthodox and bring them on board and then go left and bring all those parties together to form a governing coalition, maybe without Bibi. But I don't see how the numbers actually work. You need to convince Lapid and maybe a Victor Lieberman to come with you. I don't see what interest Lapid has to hand a government to Benny Gantz. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting that this has become a, a narrative. Can you explain why at least parts of the Israeli media are are playing up this narrative that Gantz has a better chance than Lapid to form a government, even though Gantz is polling much lower than Lapid. Um, well, first of all, I think there's a genuine Lapid hatred in Israeli media. Um, hmm. A, we should remember that the uh, Israeli media is tilting to the, or at least the political commentary tilts to the right in many aspects. Um, and Lapid is the most left-wing candidate currently on the map. So for uh, right-wing voters, Gantz, yes, is uh, better than Lapid in their opinion. B, Lapid is an ex-journalist. Um, so in many ways, I think he's, uh, you know, discriminated uh, by, <laughs> his, by his former colleagues because we don't want to admit necessarily um, or we or they, we don't want to admit that someone left us is, and is actually doing good, right? He left the closed, the closed uh, club of prestigious journalists and he's actually succeeding. Um, but, you know, there's life. There's life after journalism. Exactly. There's life after journalism. We can all, we can all be prime minister. Exactly. I think that, um, one of the reasons, uh, People were always skeptical about Lapid becoming prime minister is the fact that he, yeah, he's one of us originally. And uh, we can't, we find it hard to admit that someone can actually uh, do a good job somewhere else. Um, 
But I also think that, uh, you know, much of the Israeli media is pro-Netanyahu and undermining Lapid's ability of forming a government essentially strengthens Netanyahu uh, because, uh, again, most chances of Gantz forming a government is not with um, Lapid's, not with the ultra-Orthodox breaking up from Netanyahu, but with but with him breaking from his anti-Netanyahu camp. I agree with you that it seems like uh, um, implausible. It seems very weird. Why should Gantz go uh, do it again? Why should, he re- why should he reenact the experiment with Netanyahu, which he knows in goes well? But at the end of the day, if after the next election, the paths will be um, either forming a government with Netanyahu or another election, I think that Gantz will find it very easy to explain why he's forming a government with Netanyahu, just like Bennett did. Um, um, That's the way he explained forming a government with with the center-left. Madness. Madness if Gantz uh, does it again. But crazier things have happened, especially over the past three and a half years. Uh, It's also interesting to my mind, Tal, that uh, you said, I think correctly, that the media actually tilts rightward and is oftentimes pro-Bibi. Uh, Bibi, I think himself would dispute that. Bibi's supporters would definitely dispute that. They think the Israeli media is uh, is part of the left wing deep state. But uh, yeah, Bibi likes to Bibi likes to victimize himself many many times um, in front of the media. But uh, I think that uh, um, it's clear that uh, well, many of the narratives that we see going on uh, in media interviews, they're Netanyahu's narratives. Look at the interviews that are being conducted now with politicians. Most of them, listen to them, most of the questions are about who are you going to sit with? What are you going to sit with? Who are you going to sit with? It's all about the numbers. And to prove Netanyahu's campaigning now that Lapid doesn't have a government or Gans has a government without the joint list, and the questions in the media studios and media interviews are exactly those questions. How, who are you going to sit with if not the joint list? So I think that Netanyahu's influence on the media is extremely, extremely strong. And he does set a, a part of the political narrative. I agree. I agree. Um, so we're dancing around it, but let's get into the issue of Bibi Netanyahu. Last week, the Likud party held its party primaries. Uh, Tal, how would you describe the new look Likud electoral list for this upcoming election? Uh, hardline, anti-establishment, blindly pro-Netanyahu. What adjective would you use? And, and what did you think of, of the results uh, coming out of last week inside the Likud? Well, I think that the most uh, striking asset of the list is that loyalty to Netanyahu has become the number one asset in the Likud uh, when you look at the number one, the person who 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 came number who came first, Yariv Levin, he's Netanyahu's closest confidant and has become his uh, most important uh, political partner in the past few years, and uh, um, he's been one of the most supportive ones. Um, and if you look um, who was kicked out from the top of the list, then you see it's all of the people who, or at least most of the people who have been challenging or con- or were conceived as challenging it to, to Netanyahu in the past year. Yuli Edelstein, who reached the first place in the previous primaries in 2019, he was kicked down to the 15th place 
following his attempt to challenge Netanyahu for the Likud leadership, which eventually he didn't follow through on. But he was at some point last year, he was uh, contemplating running against Netanyahu and he was punished for that um, in this current primary. Another thing, yes, another aspect of the list is, as you mentioned, um, there's a very strong representation to the voices inside the Likud who are calling for dramatic reforms in the judicial system. Some of them do it in uh, more violent words, uh, like Dudiam Salem or Galit Distal, who is one of Netanyahu's closest um, confidants. Or, and some of them do it in a more quiet, but not necessarily less scary manner, like Yariv Levin. But at the end of the day, just like you know, um, Netanyahu's legal and personal agenda has been at the forefront of the Likud campaigning in the past few years. So you see that result in the list. Those people who have bared those messages have been strengthened in the last primary. And also some of the new faces that entered the list, um, former journalist Boaz Bismuth, another lawyer named Tali Gottlieb, they are both very much identified with what we call the Bibism. So it's very easy to see that um, the Bibism and the loyalty to Netanyahu, which are, by the way, not necessarily exactly the same, um, these are the main factors that design the way the Likud voters vote. At the same time, I will say that Netanyahu was trying to use this primary to kind of uh, um, design the list and get and get rid get rid of some of other, you know, strength strongholds inside the Likud. Um, there are still uh, very strong personas uh, in the Likud besides Netanyahu that have popular support. And Netanyahu was trying to get rid of them and trying to weaken them so they won't, so they can't pose some kind of future threat. And he failed in doing that. Um, specifically, he was trying, you know, to weaken uh, two of his, um, um, two of his, two of the most senior Likudniks today, Chaim Katz and David Bitan. And he didn't succeed to kick them out of the list and he didn't succeed to weaken their deals um, and their blocks. So in that respect, it's true that the list is very, very loyal to Netanyahu. But still, I don't think that Netanyahu is very much satisfied with this list. Um, I think he was expecting uh, other uh, other results in some of the places. And it's it's a list that can pose uh, some threat to Netanyahu if he doesn't have 61, because many of the senior figures in the Likud, A, were kicked, you know, were kicked off or kicked down in the list um, and have less to lose. And also... Some of the primary fights that Netanyahu hold, had with some of these senior Likud fellows have left very bitter blood. So what Netanyahu is fearing now is that if he doesn't reach 61, he could have an internal opposition that could make it a bit more difficult for him to keep uh, to keep the party together if they uh, lose. But again, I'll go back to the same. Uh, I still think uh, you know Netanyahu is always very concerned. Um, and some might even say he's a paranoid, right? Sometimes he's right and sometimes he's not. I don't think that there is, at the moment, I don't see any chance that there will be a huge Likud rebellion against him or defection. But uh, Netanyahu is definitely concerned from some of the figures in the list that after the elections, they could become into trouble. So it's an interesting point that you raise that uh, overall, I think the party has become more bb 
right? That he's, uh, he's maybe not fully taken over the party, but he's maybe 80, 90% there. Uh, although, like you said, pockets of potential trouble may be lurking if he doesn't win a majority in November. But it's interesting to me that uh, a lot of these so-called moderate senior Likud officials who uh, were kicked down the list by Likud primary voters uh, could have could have taken a very different approach uh, over the past few years in terms of actually trying to push out BB. Uh, and that now it's interesting to hear you say that uh, maybe they're seeing which way things are going and they have a lot less to lose uh, in the coming months that they might actually finally make a move to uh, to replace a party leader who's yeah. on trial for corruption. Yeah, I have to tell you, I I kind I, I find it hard to believe that it's going to happen. A because um, the Likud is more than a party, you know. Um, it's it's not a cliche. It's it, it has some somewhat of a family characteristic, um, and it's not just leaving the Likud. It's not just leaving Netanyahu. It's leaving the family. And B, if you look at the history of the politicians who left the Likud out of frustration from Netanyahu. They didn't succeed. They didn't survive. Uh, Moshe Kaflon formed Kulano in the first election. He had 10 seats in the next election. Afterwards, he was in four. In the third election, he already disappeared. Gidon Saar, who started out last year when he formed his party, he started out with 20 seats in the polls and ended with six seats in his first election. And now he had no choice but to dissolve into Benny Gantz's party because he wouldn't survive without it. So if I'm a political, you know, if I was a political uh, um, advisor to any of these Likud uh, members, I wouldn't necessarily advise them to get up and leave I, I would, or defect. I would actually perhaps we shouldn't say many of them are not necessarily young. Right. There's a time in a career where someone can just say, okay, this is not my party anymore. I don't survive. I don't fit here anymore. I don't fit into this. I should probably retire. By the way, Yuval Steinitz, one of Netanyahu's, uh, in the past, used to be very, very close to Netanyahu. Today, their relationship is a bit more cold. But Yuval Steinitz actually understood that even before the election uh, started. And he decided not to run in the primary because he understood that the party had changed and that his chances of reaching a, a good spot in the primary uh, were not high. So he decided to give it up. And by the way, it's just like Bennett. I, um, I've seen so many politicians who do not know when to retire that it makes me ex appreciate, ex I appreciate, I really do appreciate politicians who know when it's their last game and know when to depart. I think it's extremely crucial in, you know, the way the public impression you leave. So Steinitz, Steinitz left elegantly, right, before being kicked out of the Likud. Um, if Edelstein leaves now, he'll just be perceived as a loser, right? Yeah. Uh, look, I think I think the, the party has shifted from what we've known in the past. But as uh, uh, one senior Likud official put it to me a few months ago, uh, by the way, this particular Likud official uh, didn't do so well uh, in the recent primaries, but he said the Likud has never replaced a leader. The, the Likud leader has always either, uh, well, he's always resigned, you know, by choice. They've never, they've never, they've never actually been pushed out, and that I think speaks to the loyalty of the party. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And 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 besides, and and just to say, 
one of the things, and I, and I, I me myself, I'm, I'm like contemplating this all the time. There are a lot of things I think about, you know, covering elections and seeing nothing changing, right? It's very frustrating when you, from election to election, the polls are the same and the plontil, the mess is the same and, you know, the deadlock is the same. It's very, very frustrating. But one of the things, so I try to explain to myself, and one of the things about Netanyahu is that um, he's become, it's not about the person so much, it's about an identity issue. Being part of Netanyahu's camp is an identity issue. And in that camp, loyalty is number one asset. Um, on the other hand, also on the anti-Netanyahu camp, right? It's an identity issue. And having so many close elections time and again, people don't just change sides, right? You don't see anyone moving from one side to another. And one of the things that, one of the lessons I think that we see in the, especially from Gantz and Bennett, is that flipping sides is a bad move, Mm -hmm. right? It's a bad move for political future. It's very hard to recuperate from flipping sides. And that's, I think, uh, one of the problems that is probably going to make it more complicated to form a government next time. Yes. First rule of Israeli politics, never, ever, ever turn your back on your political base, which is what Bennett did last year and what Gantz did the year before. Uh, Tal, final question to you. You, I think more than anybody else I know over the past, say, two months, have spent the most amount of time with Israeli politicians, interviewing them, I think, especially for Walla News and uh, their kind of online TV branch. Uh how are you finding it, this campaign versus previous campaigns? Obviously, I think there there are probably different and better ways uh, to spend a summer than uh, interviewing interviewing Israeli politicians on a on a daily basis. <laughs> but uh, how is it going on your end? And and have you have you seen a change? Have you gotten more insights, or is it? kind of more of the same? Well, it's kind of more of the same. Uh, to be honest, it is very, very, uh, it's kind of frustrating to feel like you're living. It's like, uh, I think I've used this metaphor in the past, but it's just very suitable. It's like the movie uh, Groundhog Day. Every morning I wake up, it's like every morning we wake up to exactly the same day where it's <laughs> asking exactly the same questions to exactly the same people, just probably wearing different clothes or maybe my hair is a bit different. <laughs> Um, it's also frustrating because um, Israeli public ha- is not very interested um, anymore. I mean, they're still interested in politics. Yes, it's still clicking. It still brings traffic. But also, you know, the Israeli public is fed up of uh, um, hearing the campaign slogans and also from the fact that they know that many of these campaign slogans and promises will be broken the day after the election. Um, and it's also... Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's also very frustrating the fact that we don't really see any major moves um, in the polls. Mm-hmm. You don't see it. So it's like, what's the meaning of all of this? We can just fast forward to the 1st of November, have the election, and, you know, it doesn't really have any meaning. Um, that being said, each election is different from its previous one. Um, I still try to be an optimist and believe in Israeli democracy and believe that it will bring, that it may be perhaps it can, you know, uh, have surprises, create surprises. By the way, to each side, I don't mind. A surprise is a surprise, uh, nevertheless. 
Um, but it, I, I do admit that it's uh, it's it's very frustrating. We're not, um, and just to be like a whiner, um, we're not supposed to work so hard. I mean, political reporters in Israel are supposed to have a very difficult time once every four years, not once every half a year. Um, and campaigning kind of puts you in, um, kind of puts as a political reporter, you, like in a constant stress that something of FOMO. It's like a constant FOMO. You constantly think that something is happening that you don't know about. Um, and that can be kind of stressful. So uh, um, it is frustrating that most Israelis are on vacation, um, not necessarily looking and watching my interviews. But I do expect that the closer we get to the election, the attention will become uh, attention will rise. And I think that my energy will rise as well. It's uh, I hope it'll rise as well. So for all of you listening to this podcast on the beach on vacation, spare a- Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, have a have a pina colada for me as well. Yes. Uh, while Tal is in the trenches uh doing doing God's work interviewing the Israeli candidates and politicians. Uh you enjoy your pina coladas. Tal, uh, as always, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll have you on. Uh, I won't make you come on before the election, but maybe after the election to, to explain what just happened. Yalla. I'm looking forward. Uh, thanks, Tal. Bye. Bye. Okay, that was the great Tal Shalev. Many thanks to her, as always, for her time and insights. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. 